right. Well, thank you, music team. <clears throat> Serving us so well. Zach, that's what we call pinch hitting in ministry world. You got to step up and uh, did a great job. Thank you. Well, last week, you know, we finished up a series of messages focusing on imitating God. And we've learned that uh, Paul wants the church to take her cues from Christ, her Savior, and mimic Him. That's because we're His body, and as His body, we should reflect Christ. And in a way, we should extend Christ in this darkened world. That's part of our objective in the church. And Paul gave us a list in Ephesians 4 that we should, uh, a list of things that we should learn to put off, a list of things that we should learn to put on. And the climax, if you remember from last week, uh, of this list is what Paul saw um, at the op- is what we saw at the opening of chapter five. Paul wants us to imitate God as we sacrificially love each other. He wants us to love in the way that Christ has loved us. So we've experienced Christ's love, and he wants us to bend that love out to other people. But tonight we're making our way into the next paragraph of, of chapter five, beginning in verse three. And up to this point, Paul has been giving us short and quick commands to put off and put on, but now he's going to slow down a little bit. He's going to take one particular topic and he's going to develop it out in more detail. And he focuses on one particular issue in the Ephesian church, and that's sexual sin. And Paul obviously felt the need to double down here and uh, spend some extended time on this topic because the Ephesians were tempted in this area. Instead of cultivating true and and self-sacrificial love, love that focuses on giving for the benefit of others, Paul knows that the church is still tempted toward a counterfeit love. Or a satanic perversion of love that's really not love at all, as we're going to see tonight. Even though that we're new creatures in Christ, even though that's happened, Paul knows that we're still plagued by the old man that's corrupted by deceitful desires, it's full of deception and these evil desires. And he also knows how easy it is to deceive ourselves. It's easy to be duped into thinking that I can be a Christian and live in all manner of sexual filth. And so after laying out a biblical love in its most pure and Christ-like form, he then is going to take some time to develop and double down on its perversion, which we could call idolatrous lust. He provides the church with directives on how to battle it. Very practical, very helpful. And he laces these directives with motivations. He just weaves these in in this text with truth that's intended to liberate um, even the most enslaved among us here. And it it doesn't take much to realize how pervasive this problem is in our own culture, in the church. Even secular authors have described our culture as pornified. What they mean is that aspects of pornography and sexual immorality have thoroughly permeated our culture. What was once only found in dirty magazines behind the the counter at the drugstore is now celebrated openly and freely on the internet and in virtually every sphere of advertising. And beyond that, 
sexual misconduct barely even spoken of in previous generations, things like homosexuality, human trafficking, and even pedophilia are just commonplace in our society today. So just listen to a few of these jarring statistics about pornography, just if we just narrow it down to to that one issue. It's estimated that every second, 28,000 Americans look at pornography. With 40 million Americans visiting these sites on a regular basis. And the sites aren't hard to find. There are 24.6 million pornographic websites on the internet. That accounts for 12% of the internet. And the allure is appealing, as as evidenced by data related to the internet searches. Approximately 25% of all internet searches are porn-related. That's 68 million a day. In fact, the words sex and porn are among the top five most frequently searched words on the internet for children under 18. That's sobering for us as parents. If those stats aren't devastating enough, it's estimated that 116,000 people search every day for illegal child porn. But the problem isn't just an American one. It's worldwide. It's estimated that about $100 billion is spent each year worldwide on pornographic material with $13.6 billion being spent in the U.S. alone. The U.S. is the fourth largest porn purchaser in the world behind China, South Korea, and Japan. And so do you see why secular, even secular writers, people that are blind and dead in sin are calling our culture a pornified culture? The estimates are almost unbearable to hear. So how can this market exist? Because there is an insatiable demand. There is an insatiable desire to consume it. That's why it exists. Pornographic images would hold no power without a deep desire in the viewer to consume them. That's simple supply and demand, guys. So by way of just introduction tonight, we're obviously talking about this topic of battling lust. I want you to turn your Bibles with me to Romans 1. Okay, so we're going to start there as an introduction. Romans 1. I want us just to take a minute and just unpack this, this demand for sexual immorality. And look at how the scriptures frame this up for us and see where does this come from. Look with me at Romans 1. We'll begin reading in verse 21. But we'll back up to verse 18 just to grab the context. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. And now Paul's going to begin to give some commentary on what I think is sort of original sin, as it's sort of 
even as, as sort of overlaid on humanity. Okay, so think about this original sin in the garden and then sort of overlay that on humanity. So he says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, because they did that, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts, so underline that phrase, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Now, why? So he's going to come back around and give us Two fundamental reasons why this happened. Number one, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And number two, because they worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. And then he goes on, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those who are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So all I want to do in this, to set this up is to show you in verse 24 and 25 that Paul says God gave up humanity in the lusts of, their, in the lusts of our hearts to impurity. Verse 24. And why? How did that happen? Because we did two things. We exchanged the truth about God for a lie and because we worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. So what, what this means is that we want to be sexually perverse because... I've got to work this PowerPoint here. It's because we're deceived. We want to be sexually perverse because we're deceived, according to Romans one twenty five. That means we don't know what's true. We think something is good for us or beneficial for us or pleasurable for us when it's actually death for us. So the fundamental problem is deception. Culture, the church, in your heart, it's deception. And running parallel to that, another way to say it is the second thing Paul says. He, he gives sort of a parallel description of this. He tells us that we want to be sexually perverse because we are idolaters. We're idolaters. That means we're, we're idolizing something. We're, we're, to be an idolater means you worship something other than God. You worship a false god. You pay homage to a satanic counterfeit god. So we have false worship and we're deceived. Those are the two fundamental reasons. And this means, just drawing this out, if we're thinking about where does this demand come from for all this sort of sexual morality that we see all around us and in our own lives and our hearts, it means that the ultimate problem, the ultimate problem isn't external, but it's internal. This means you can't merely remove devices or cut off the internet or get out or get filtering programs on your computer and think that you're going to be okay. The problem is ultimately on the inside. It's ultimately in your mind. In terms of deception, it's ultimately in what you worship. 
That, be, that just means until our hearts change, there will be no deliverance. No matter how many filters you have on your, on your computer. Or we could say it like this. Until what we believe changes, or what we worship changes, we won't have any lasting transformation. Because that's the fundamental issue. Ultimate problem isn't external, but it's internal. And it also implies that the ultimate problem is not biological, but moral. It's not biological, but it's moral. That means you you can't take a cold shower. You can't just think that you need to hit a dopamine to be okay. It means having sex in marriage is not going to fix your issue. The problem stems from idolatry and deception, not your, your biological makeup. So what do we need? Well, Paul's told us in Ephesians, so you can go ahead and turn over there to Ephesians 5. Paul has told us in the whole letter itself, from a big picture standpoint, what we need is to be remade. Human beings need to be remade into the image of Christ. We need to become new creatures through Christ through the gospel. We need to have a new life imparted to us. We need radical forgiveness from all our defilements and to be placed in Christ. We need the power of the Holy Spirit operative in our lives so He illuminates truth and its application for us. And the glory is if you believed in Jesus tonight, that's exactly what you have. You are a new creature in Christ and Paul's going to appeal to that tonight in terms of our fight in battling lust. God has rescued you and He's given you new inclinations. He's given you new power to obey Him. He's, he's torn down your idols and put Himself in your heart. Now you, you have the ability to worship the one true and living God. You've turned from idols. You're not deceived anymore. You have the ability. The Spirit is turning on the lights in your house and the lights are coming on. You're able to see truth, perceive it, and grow. So there's, you have all you need if you're a new creature in Christ. Now we've got to build on that. We have to appropriate that into our lives. But you, you have it all. And it doesn't stop at conversion. We also need this continued truth, like we just said, in community, in the church. We need the church. We need pastors, mature believers, faithful friends, helping us learn to live by the truth. And we need this rock-solid biblical directives and motivations that we're going to see tonight in order to renew our minds, in order to dispel the lies and and provide the path forward. So, in our passage tonight, the way this unfolds is Paul's given us those very directives and motivations that we need. And I'm just outlining it around the six directives he gives us in this text for battling sexual sin. So, that's where we'll be going. Six directives for battling sexual sin in this passage. Let's go ahead and just read the entire passage. Begin with me in verse 3. We're only going to cover four of the six tonight. So it's going to be a a two-parter with a retreat in between. So it'll be great. So Paul says in chapter 5, verse 3, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must, must not even be named among you, as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral, or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, 
has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And he'll go on into the next passage, which is related, but that's the essential paragraph that we're going to be looking at for the next two sessions that we're together. So these are Paul's directives for battling sexual sin. Learning to, we could have titled this, Walking in the Light, or uh, Walking as Children of Light. But I want to focus in tonight on this, this battle uh, against sexual sin in these first four of six directives. So the first thing that Paul says right out of the gate, uh, one way we could, we could summarize this, is that we need to raise the bar on sexual sin in the church. We need to raise the bar on sexual sin in the church. He says... Chapter 5, verse 3, But sexual immorality, all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. Out of place. So he, Paul gives a list of all kinds of sexual sin. He gives behaviors, desires, speech even. And he says there shouldn't even be a hint of it in the church, in this church. In boundless. Not a whiff of it. Pure on the inside and pure on the outside. Paul's saying that any form of sexual deviancy is totally antithetical to the church. Who, by the way, he describes as saints, which means holy ones. Holy ones of God. Now, we immediately feel the impact of this directive, don't we? That they shouldn't even, shouldn't even, you smell, like shouldn't smell anything like sexual sin in here. What just happened? Well, Paul set the bar where it needs to be, where it ought to be, as God's church. That's because the Ephesians and, and every other believer is tempted to lower the bar, to make excuses for sexual sin, to be deceived about the evils of it, to treat it casually, to normalize it even in the church. But that's precisely Paul's point. It should be the furthest thing from normal in the church. We're going to come back to this point in just a minute. First, let's, let's take a look at exactly what Paul is condemning in this verse. We've got to get our arms around this. We'll take them one by one. First, he says, he talks about sexual immorality that shouldn't even be hinted at. In the church, he starts this list with a broad term that is encompassing really any type of illicit sex. It means any type of sexual interaction that's outside of marriage. Things like adultery, prostitution, fornication, that would have been really common 
applications of this in Paul's day. But just sexual immorality starts with that big broad term, and then he and then he follows it up even more broadly with the next term, all impurity, all impurity. And that just means absolutely anything that's filthy and dirty. Okay, it's sort of his catch-all phrase. This includes any immoral thoughts, fantasies, ideas, not to mention the tangible expressions like porn and messing around with your girlfriend or boyfriend or any other behaviors that tend to go along with these kinds of lusts. All impurity shouldn't even be named in our midst. Next, he says covetousness. He hits one of the central taproots of sexual sin, which is is this covetous desire. What is that, actually? Well, it's greed. It's another translation of the same word, greed. This is the insatiable desire that wants more than God has provided. That's what greed is. And in this context, it's manifested in sexual greed. This person assumes that others exist for his or her own gratification. The covetous person consumes selfishly. And so we're beginning to see how this is the furthest thing from Christ-like love that we covered last week. Because that kind of love gives of itself for the benefit of others. It lays its life down for the good of others. This kind of love is self-seeking. It's a consuming type of love. And just as an aside, I don't want you to miss where Paul's going here. He's going to continue through this this discussion on purity, and he's going to jump into family relationships, and in particular, he's going to hit husbands. And husbands in particular, what they're called to do is to love their wives like Christ loved the church. And guess what Christ did? He gave himself up for her. So if we back this out, and you're a guy and you want to be a husband one day, and you can't quit looking at porn, the heart of what you're doing is you're cultivating a self-absorbed consumption of people and of women in particular. You're, you're cultivating the, the satanic heart of a husband toward his wife. It's the very opposite of what Christ wants you to cultivate. So to think, oh, man, I'll just get married one day and this will go away, you're still going to have that greedy, covetous heart. And you're going to take that into marriage, and then it's going to blow up in your marriage. Okay, so I just want to point that out right here, that this covetousness is the taproot. It's this consuming desire. So we've got to work on these things at the heart level. And I just want to make that quick connection, because it's directly related to how husbands are going to be called in just a few verses to love their wives. So covetousness is at the taproot. He keeps going, though. That's, that shouldn't even be named among us, but what else? He says filthiness in verse 4. He, adds a, he, he goes on to add a few more ex- expressions to the list. He says filthiness is, is any form of indecent or shameful behavior. That's really the idea, is the shame side of this. These kinds of, of sexual sins are often done in secret due to the shame and embarrassment that they bring when it's publicized. And it's those kinds of things that are done in the dark, in secret, those things that you shirk away from exposing 
That's what Paul's talking about here. Those are the, the filthiness or the shameful deeds that are, are done. He's saying, look, church shouldn't even be characterized by this in the, in the slightest. He says foolish talk. Paul also condemns not just our, our actions and our attitudes, but also our sexually charged speech. Foolish talk is just the way the ESV translates this phrase, but it, it has the idea in the context of like base speech or like a gutter mouth. Somebody who speaks with obscenities that are particularly sexual in nature. It's just kind of that crude, you know, base humor and just obscenities. It's just foolishness, foolish talk. And he also says crude joking. Crude joking. He rounds this, this list out by condemning even our, our coarse joking. Now, I think if we were to sit down with Paul and just interact with him, we would see this is a man full of joy. He can tell a good joke, and he's easy to be around. Um, so he's not condemning laughter and having a good time. What he is condemning are things like sexual innuendos. He's condemning the person who takes anything, no matter how innocent it is, and turns it into a sexual joke. Paul forbids this here because it's, it's wrong, but it, it also, and you, you know this, we know this from experience, it leads so quickly down a wrong path, right? It leads us down the path to more sexual filth. And I think what it does is it, is it trivializes one of God's most precious gifts to his people in the marriage relationship. So instead of coarsely joking about it, we should, we should hold it in the highest esteem, this sexual interaction in marriage. It's a beautiful, sweet gift from God. We shouldn't joke about it. And Paul's point here is that, is that none of this is appropriate in the church. That's what it means when he says... It shouldn't even be named among you. It doesn't, fit, it doesn't fit you as the church. It doesn't match with the, the nature of the bride of Christ. Now, it used to characterize us before we knew God, before we had the Spirit, before we understood what's true and what's good and, and beautiful and noble and joyful. Yeah. Back when we were satanic and perverted by our nature, but as believers, people that belong to God, we have been washed, we've been given a new nature, we've been provided with new power, we're God's saints now in Christ, so sexual immorality shouldn't characterize us anymore. And that's what Paul means when he says twice in this text that it's not fitting for the church, or that these things are out of place for the church. So Paul's raising this bar, but he's not just hammering us here, because this is incredibly hopeful for us. How? How is it hopeful? Well, Paul's not out of touch with reality. What he's commanding here is actually possible. It's very possible, and in fact, it's the norm of every true, genuine believer. God is able to transform you. He's able to renew your mind. He's able to teach you to put to death these sin patterns so that there really won't be a hint of sexual immorality in your life. 
He's able to do that. And he does that. You're not going to be forever free from every temptation of lust. Like you're not going to be free from that because we understand the old man is perpetually around, influencing us. We're perpetually deceived. But in a very real way, in a very tangible way, in a very measurable way, God intends to liberate you through His truth so that this can be true of you. Paul's not just trying to bury you, Christian. He's trying to give you a noble ideal to strive for in this text. So we've got to, along with Paul, raise the bar on sexual sin in the church. That's Paul's first directive, but he doesn't stop here. Something needs to replace sexual sin, and it it might surprise you. Paul's second directive says that we should replace lust with contented thanksgiving. Lust has got to be replaced. It shouldn't characterize us, but what should characterize us, what should be the pattern of our lives, is thanksgiving that springs from a contented soul. Look with me in verse 4, the end of verse 4. And you'll see the contrast. But instead of these things, into verse 4, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually moral or impure, who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of Christ and God. But the contrast, and it goes together with a supporting reason, the contrast is let, let there be thanksgiving in place of the lust. <clears throat> so, what is this, this thanksgiving he's talking about? Well, it's gratitude. It's gratitude. To be thankful is essentially to express gratitude for some kind of benefit or blessing. And especially when we realize that we don't deserve it at all. Okay? So Thanksgiving is supposed to replace this stuff, but how? I wouldn't have picked this. Okay? Show you that I'm not an inspired apostle. I wouldn't have picked this one. <laughs> That's a delayed laugh, guys. Come on. You're tired or it's not funny. Uh, I, I wouldn't have chosen this to stick this in here as the replacement. I would have thought, thought of some self-control or some other thing. And certainly that's true. But this begs another question that I thought about this week. How exactly is gratitude the opposite of sexual sin? Well, I think for Paul, like we saw earlier, covetousness or greed produces a lot of sexual sin. Right? We see something... We perceive that it's good for us, and we want it. And when God has forbidden the thing that we want, yet we want it anyway, like right now, apart from marriage, apart from the the means that God has designed, and we sin to get that thing, so we see it, we want it, we go get it, and sinfully do that, that's greed. That's a proud heart that thinks I know better than God in that moment. It's a discontent heart. Because I think I need more than what God has provided for me in that moment. But gratitude, gratitude on the other hand, it springs from an entirely different kind of heart. Think about this with me for a minute. Gratitude springs up from a heart that's content with what God has provided. Not discontent. A heart that's content from a heart that trusts God's goodness and recognizes his provision and good gifts all around us. 
gratitude comes from a humble heart. A heart that, that recognizes we don't deserve anything from God given our high-handed rebellion against Him. One author says it, says it like this. He says, thankfulness is the opposite of lust because the thankful heart has stopped prowling around for everything it doesn't have and is overwhelmed with appreciation for all the good things it already possesses. It's well stated. The thankfulness is the opposite of lust because the thankful heart has stopped prowling around for everything it doesn't have and is overwhelmed with appreciation for all the good things it already possesses. It's from a book called Finally Free by Heath Lambert. I would definitely recommend that as a resource. Finally Free, Heath Lambert. I've got lots of them in my office. We could say this a little differently and just sort of summarize it, kind of going back to the Romans 1 passage a bit, connecting those dots. Gratitude springs up from a worshipful heart. Thanksgiving is at the heart of what it means to worship God, not to worship yourself. And in fact, I was kind of meditating even this afternoon on some of these connections in Romans 1. You don't have to turn back there, but I just want to read something for you out of that. Just another connection here that, like, man, maybe I need to read Scripture a little more closely. Connect these dots. He says in verse 21 of Romans 1, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God, or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking. So this, this thanksgiving is, is important. It's very important. It's tied to a worshipful heart, a heart that, that worships the Lord and thanks him for his good gifts. So gratitude is a powerful weapon against lust and sexual sin, according to this verse. And as New Covenant people, it means we need to think through how we practically cultivate gratitude in our lives if we're going to battle at this level. Does that make sense? So here are just a few ways that we can cultivate gratitude. These are not exhaustive, okay? So you could think of more. But I'm just going to give you some of the ones that I think about, I practice. How do we cultivate gratitude? Number one, we've got to remember what we actually deserve. How quickly we forget this. We can always go back to this. Anytime you're having problems in your Christian life, it's probably a great place to go back to. Okay? What do we actually deserve? Okay? We deserve hell. Our hearts and pride begin to exalt itself, and we don't think we actually deserve that. We don't think we're bad enough to deserve eternal hell. But the reality is that our hearts outside of Christ are, are fundamentally characterized by idolatry and this covetousness that we saw. We worship things that are not God. We worship ourselves. We want to gratify our own selfish impulses all the time. In our, in our old state, in our Adam state, that's all we did. All the time. From birth. We may have looked clean on the outside, but that was what was going on in your inner person on the inside. And that likely, in some form or manifestation, has come out in some type of sexual immorality. And Paul says in verse 5, if we go back to Ephesians, in verse 5, that, that these kinds of people don't inherit the kingdom. Look in verse 5. <laughs> Notice the intensity of his language here. It's like he's like 
you may be sure of this. You, you know this. Like you, this is guaranteed. That everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Like, you can, you can take that to the bank. Like, they will be judged. They won't have any inheritance in the kingdom. And the sort of implication out of this, sort of a subtle implication, is that, like, that was us. Like, we deserved that. Like, we, we don't deserve any share in the kingdom that God has now given us in Christ. Like, you flip back to Ephesians 1, all those blessings, the benefits package that we've been given. Like, that's all in Christ, through Christ, because of Christ. Like, not, nothing that we did earned that. In fact, like we've said before, we were the terrorists against God's kingdom. And he has liberated us and given us the most unfathomable blessing, sitting at his right hand at his, as his sons and daughters. So remember what you actually deserve. That's, that's a very good way to begin to cultivate gratitude in your life if you are not thankful as a believer. Number two, remember what God has graciously given you. Remember what God has graciously given you. Again, in in verse 5, just kind of milking these out of of verse 5, if unbelievers won't inherit the kingdom, it means you will, if you're a believer. Even though you were once a participant in this unrestrained covetousness, you've been forgiven, you've been cleansed, you've been seated at God's right hand, you've been adopted into his royal family, and you're going to reign with him one day in his kingdom. Those things don't change. That's like you, that's given to you as a gift. No matter what your earthly circumstances, whatever's happening there. God's actively preparing you as bad as your earthly circumstances are. He's using all those bad earthly circumstances to prepare you to reign with him. To cultivate the character in you that's going to be necessary to reign with Christ. And remembering this, remembering what we deserve paired with what he's given to us the big things that don't change, that is like an eternal spring for, grat- for gratitude. Eternal spring for gratitude. But that's not all. That's not all. Notice all the expressions of God's undeserved goodness all around you. All the time. Notice all the expressions of God's undeserved goodness all around you. You see, when we're coveting, we myopically focus on the one thing we don't have, and then we neglect the infinite undeserved graces all around us. So just one example, Adam and Eve in the garden, okay? If you think back to that example, there was one tree in the garden that that they were not to eat of. And the text is, goes to kind of great lengths to describe the sort of the lavish goodness of God in the multitude of other varied trees in that garden. But when they keyed in, the human couple keyed in on that one tree, they lost sight of every, all the other the manifestations of God's goodness all around them. They began to zero in on the one thing that, they, that God was withholding in his good, kind providence. And they were more susceptible to the lies of Satan to doubt the very goodness of God. God's withholding something from you. Ah, maybe he is. So, when we're coveting, that we, we do this. We focus on that one thing we don't have, and we neglect the infinite, undeserved graces all around us. 
And if we, can, if we can pan out in those moments that we're tempted and recognize the lavish goodness of God that's tangibly expressed, we're going to be grateful. It's going to produce gratitude. So make this part of your daily meditations to recount the undeserved benefits the Lord's given you, in addition to those first two things of like the bedrock of our gratitude. And then go beyond that of not just merely noticing them, but actually experiencing God's goodness all around you. And thanking him for it. Taking this from the language of Psalm 34, 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Right? Taste and see. That's, that's experiential language. It goes beyond just recognizing it, but actually enjoying God's good gifts unto his glory. Enjoy that friendship. And thank God for providing it. Enjoy that good meal. And thank God for gifting that to you. Enjoy the rich body life that we have here in Boundless and in the church. And thank God for the church. Experience it. Or as the psalmist says, taste and see that the, that the Lord is good. And then, last thing I'll say here is, is experience the peace and joy that comes from contentment. Experience the peace and joy that comes from contentment. It won't take long until you realize that living a contented life, thankful for what God has given you, is absolute freedom and joy. Like, that is, that's where it's at. Lust and constant coveting robs you of joy. It promises some satisfaction, and then it just hoses you on the back end. It aggravates your conscience, it produces perpetual guilt, and it erodes your assurance. A discontent person is a very unhappy person. But resting in God's, resting in God and His promises, what He's, got, what he's given us, it produces joy and, and contentment and peace. So I'm just holding this out for you guys. Like, experience that. Like, it's worth it. It's so good. And you can have it right now if you repent of coveting and you rest in God. So there's just some practical ways we can cultivate gratitude in this fight for sexual purity that's uh, incredibly important. So he's told us that we should raise the bar on sexual sin in the church. We should replace lust with contented thanksgiving. Next, he tells us to fight deception with truth. Verse 6. That's his second, or I'm sorry, that's his third directive, to fight deception with truth. Look in verse 6. He says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Don't let anybody deceive you with empty words. Paul knows that, that even though we're new creatures, we're still plagued by the old man, that old edemic nature. I'm just going to keep saying this over and over until it, it clicks with all of us. Okay, Remember how he said that that nature is corrupt through the desires of deceit? Back in verse 22 of chapter 4. That means the old man, who we once were, is, is a deceived person. And that's also what we saw in Romans 1 earlier. The, the fundamental problem of us is that we were deceived. So here, Paul's urging the church not to fall back into that deception about these kinds of things. Not to give way to the empty words that people are saying. But what's the particular deception in this context? What are those empty words? Any, do we have any ideas of what, that was, what was going on? Well, apparently... Uh, people are trying to downplay the seriousness of sexual sin. 
They were trying to say that God wasn't going to punish it, or that he would overlook it, or that grace would cover their lack of repentance. Some form of that, because of what he says in verse 6. Notice what he says here. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, that's the sexual immorality, because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Like, it's coming. Don't be deceived. So I think people were trying to downplay that God wasn't going to punish sin, or sexual sin in this, in this case. But Paul's saying, listen, church, you can be sure that God's going to pour his eternal wrath out on this evil. Like, it's, that's going to happen. The sons of disobedience, he's, they're going to receive this wrath. That's, those are the ones who, whose lives are characterized by this kind of sin. They will experience God's wrath if they don't repent. So Paul's looking us square in the eyes, and he's warning us not to fall prey to these kinds of lies. And you might be thinking, what? I mean, that's pretty clear. Like, what's, what's deceptive about that? Well... I think there's a lot of subtle ways that we fall into that same, that same trap of thinking God doesn't really take sin that seriously to pour his wrath out on it. So don't believe these, these common lies. Just a few examples. Don't believe that certain forms of lust aren't sinful. Don't believe the lie that says that, you know, these, yeah, that, that might be bad, but these things over here, they're, they're not actually sinful. Now, this happens in a lot of ways. Okay. We rename our lust a sexual disorder and we act like it's strictly a biological or hereditary problem. It's something to be cured or coped with. And this and if that's the case, which is not, but if that's the case, then it, it minimizes the fact that judgment's coming, doesn't it? Wrath of God's gonna be poured out on that? On a biological problem? Some people, some Christians and counselors will even go so far as to say things like masturbation isn't always sinful. And I think just these are modern day equivalents of the empty words that Paul warns us about here in our text. So it's a lie that says certain forms of lust, they're not sinful. That's wrath. So don't believe that lie. Don't believe the lie that lust isn't that serious. Don't believe the lie that minimizes the seriousness of lust. We've all heard it. You know, everybody's, oh, everybody's doing this. So just, just cut yourself some slack here. You know? Like, the whole dorm's looking at this stuff. So like, we're in this together. You know? just, just grace covers that. You know? It's okay. It's not that bad. Lust isn't that serious. Wrath of God's not really going to come on that, is it? Yeah, that's a lie. So don't believe the lie that minimizes the seriousness of lust. If people are doing that in your life, run from them. Don't believe the lie that you're not actually responsible for lust. The lie that says it's not your fault. Well, it's certainly not your computer's fault or the internet's fault 
or your boyfriend's fault. It's not the result of some repressed childhood experience that happened to you. Or, Of course, there's circumstantial factors to our sin, but they're not the cause. That's another form of this lie, that God's wrath is not really going to come down on things that people aren't ultimately responsible for. If you're not ultimately responsible for that, God's wrath? Like, really? going to come down on that? But these things happen all the time. We blame it on, on other things. So don't believe that lie, that you're not actually responsible for lust. And last lie, again, I'm just kind of, I'm keeping these lies in the context of this, like, wrath of God coming, okay? Don't believe the lie that you can live in unrepentant lust and be a Christian. This is probably one of the most pervasive lies in evangelicalism that you can continue with your porn addiction or sexual escapades and simultaneously be a believer. They say you can run headlong into sin without any restraint of your lust and simply assume that grace covers your sin. Think about what's actually said here. Put it in Old Testament terms. You can worship Molech and Yahweh at the same time. Simultaneously. Well, that's not true. You know that. Paul said earlier that a covetous person, someone whose life is characterized by coveting and greed, that person's an idolater. It's getting back to our worship problem. That means they're worshiping a false god. They're enslaved to their desires and they must have them at all costs. Instead of looking to God, they always look to sex to provide what they need in the moment. Instead of loving God, they're in love with sex. It feels like you can't exist without it. That you'll die without it. That's the language of worship. You have another God, and it's not Christ. Something else is ruling your life. Something else is calling the shots. So if that's you... Let this text rattle you. Let it cause you to begin to see clearly. To begin repenting truly. To begin trusting God. To begin walking in a new life. Don't miss this. If this is you, eternal wrath is certainly coming for you. If you do not reject this lie. But truth is here, and it's, it's right here. And it's at your door. There's so much hope for you. There's so much love for you in Christ, even at this moment. Christ himself absorbs all this wrath that's described here for his people, for prior porn users. So will you trust him now? So Paul warns us not to be deceived. As the church. Will we struggle with lust? Yes. Will we be fighting against it until the day we die? Yes. That's what it means to be battling the old man and putting him off. But the fundamental difference between a believer, between us and, and a false believer, a fake believer, someone who's pretending, is that we see our sin, 
we're humbled by it, we confess it to God, we ask for His help, we trust in Christ, and we continue to battle to renew our mind. Will growth be hard and slow and at times imperceptible? Yes. Will it at times feel like you're enslaved to it again? Yes. But if you zoom out, you will see the fundamental difference between a believer and someone who is pretending is that there's a spirit-wrought humility in the soul that is broken and trembles at God's word. And this brings us to the, the final directive for tonight. We'll just be really, really quick on this one. And this is full of gospel hope. I love it. Paul says, don't participate in the darkness that you no longer belong to. Just don't do it. Don't go back there. Don't participate in it. Look in verse 7. Therefore, do not become partners with them. That's those upon whom the wrath of God is coming for their sexual deviance. Don't become partners with them. Why? For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. And for next week, walk as children of light. So he's saying, essentially in that first instruction, don't participate in the darkness that you no longer belong to. It's sort of a summary of, of everything you said up to this point. Like, therefore, you know, he's kind of drawing an inference, therefore don't, don't participate with it. It's really straightforward, and it's, it's a summary of what we've been talking about. Paul looks at us, he looks at the church, and he essentially says, this isn't who you are anymore. You used to be full of this satanic darkness, but not now. Christ has redeemed you. God has placed you in Christ and now in Him, in the Lord. Notice that. In Him, you are light. You are pure. You belong to the truth. So don't go back to the vomit. Don't participate with those that will experience God's wrath. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine? Like, you're, you're not part of that group. And you're there looking at porn on the day of Christ's return. And he consumes those folks. And you are delivered. Can you imagine the shame in your salvation in that moment? That you are participating in the very thing that sent them to eternal damnation. That's the idea. That's not you. You're not going to receive that. So don't participate in it anymore. There's better things for you. And we're going to get into that next week. The better things, the, the proactive pursuit of Christ-likeness in this, in this arena of purity. We're going to end here tonight even though there's a lot more text on this issue. And, and if this lesson has unearthed something in your heart or life and you need help, please come talk to us. This is why we're here. My prayer has been all day that God continues to purify boundless for His purposes. I'm not shocked by things. We would be thrilled to be the means to help you in this area. And if you're unsure where you're at with the Lord, out of a message like this. Again, we would love to help you process through that. So just let us know. 
Now, there's, there's two very more proactive and positive directions left in this text. I don't want you to, I just kind of want to give you a teaser for next time. One involves actually walking in the light. So, so next time we're going to unpack exactly what that means as it relates to sexual purity. And the other involves helping others going on the offensive and actually exposing the works of darkness. That's what Paul calls us to in this text. So being, as light, we're actually an instrument of, of bringing light into darkness. So we'll unpack both of these next time that we're together. But just remember that, that next week, we're, we're canceling upcoming Thursday because of the retreat. So we're going to spend three days together, those of you that are going. If you're not, sorry. Uh, next year. Uh, yeah, right. Um, so just know that we're, we're sort of, I'm leaving you hanging for two weeks. So there, there may be questions, that's fine, and we'll have, we'll have a retreat to discuss it. So just plan to be here. 12.45 on Friday, and let us know about the car and the ride situation so we can, we can square that up. Sarah, any directions? And it's a nacho bar. Wow, talk about gratitude and God's good, good, good gifts. Go enjoy the nachos. All right, let's pray. Father, we are humbled. We're humbled to be loved by you. Lord, I know before Christ, I was full of sexual deviancy in my heart. I was reminded of that this week. And yet, um, that didn't stop you from coming. Um, we loved our sin, and you came and died for us as your, when we were your enemies. And you redeemed us and washed us and have set us apart, and Lord, forgive us as we flirt with that, as we go back to those things. I pray that you would use your word to motivate us to be people, children of light, like you are going to tell us next time, and that you would teach us to, to walk in the light. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Go enjoy some nachos.